Kia ora, I'm Damien Venuto. It's November 3rd and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Artsakh is a ghost town. The disputed territory, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, was once home to around 120,000 ethnic Armenians. Artsakh is officially viewed by much of the world as part of Azerbaijan. In September, Azerbaijani forces enacted a large-scale military offensive against the breakaway state. The residents fled, and soon a decree was signed that would officially dissolve all of Nagorno-Karabakh's institutions. Despite the ongoing refugee crisis, the extraordinary story has faded from public attention. One person who has been speaking about the chaos is Dr. Maria Amudian, a senior lecturer on politics and international relations at Auckland University, as well as the host of US radio show The Scholar's Circle. Maria, like former University of Auckland student Dr. Anna Matavosian, who has just returned to Aotearoa from Armenia, has strong ties to the area. Today, on the front page, they share the stories that many have failed to hear. Maria, there's been so much geopolitical chaos around the world over the last year. The ongoing war in Ukraine, the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Morocco, the outbreak of the Hamas-Israel war. So if somebody came into all of this mess and they'd maybe missed what had happened to the Armenian people this year, how would you fill them in? So in essence, what happened is that Armenians wanted to stay in their indigenous lands. I mean, this is where their parents and grandparents, their graveyards, their churches... And so they stayed, and they maintained their lifestyle as much as they could. But then Azerbaijan started to squeeze them, cutting off all food, cutting off all water, cutting off energy. So it's winter, and they're freezing, and they can't feed their children. And so it was a a really horrific situation. And then once they essentially beat them down into this state, then they attacked militarily. These are civilians. I mean, while there were members of the Artsakh Armed Forces, they were attacking civilians. And they forced them out of their homelands, about 120,000 that were left. And they fled to Armenia, which was the closest place they could go. So now there are another 120,000 refugees, which have nothing. Maria, how bad is the situation for those refugees at the moment? Because I think what people don't quite understand here is you have Azerbaijan, which is a massive, powerful, wealthy nation compared to Artsakh, which is far smaller. So what's happened to those refugees? What's the situation like for them at the moment? Look, they left with the clothes on their backs, in a sense, right? They left with nothing. And so here they are sleeping where they can with the kindness of strangers or friends or whomever. I understand some have been trying to also go to Russia. So there's like a contingent that is going to Russia. But that's pretty much like they have nothing. And you have just returned from Armenia and you were helping family from the Godlo Karabakh. What was that like? And what were some of their stories? Different families have different stories. Uh, people are still trying to find a place to live. Like in our village, we have uh, a couple of families who have found temporary accommodation. So they're getting support from, like Maria said, from strangers or relatives in the form of, you know, basic, very basic supplies, because indeed they had to escape Artsakh to save their lives just without anything. You know, they just got into their cars and moved to Armenia. 
sometimes you can see people in petrol stations, uh, families who were moving from town to town, trying to find a better place, or a more suitable place to live. Sometimes we would approach them and they would tell us their stories. It's a pretty sad uh, situation. People, especially elderly people, feel quite helpless. But at the same time, you can see big hope in those people and big strengths. Here in the town centre, if I go quiet, you'd be able to hear nothing. There is absolutely no one who's left here, apart from a few elderly, disabled and others. Although we were hearing from Azerbaijani officials that they're free to stay, they have nothing to fear. But you have to understand the history of the last three decades as well, because there's been so much hatred, so much violence. This is what a city without people looks like. Anna, personally, for you, what toll did this take on you to be helping these family members and to, to be talking to these people about their stories? This couldn't have been easy for you. Yeah, I have a family connection. Uh, well, I have a personal connection, ancestral connection to Artsakh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, because my mom's side comes from Artsakh. So long, long time ago, you know, her ancestors moved to the north of Armenia and from there they moved to Baku, Azerbaijan, to live there. So even my grandfather was born there. So they had a long history of Armenian community there. So apparently my grandparents and my aunt became refugees in the 1990s. So it's a very personal situation. Also during that time, between 1988 and 1994, when the war was ongoing, I was living in a, a frontline village and apparently there were shootings at the border uh, with Nakhchevan. That is the south of Armenia. And so the whole village, including my family, like my father and uncles, had to go and defend the border. And so it was like having your family being attacked in Azerbaijan just for being Armenians. And at the same time, you know, being close to the border and having to defend yourself. Like, and that was all happening at around the age of when I was 10. And since that age or even earlier, I could understand that being an Armenian is not a very safe thing, geographically at least, you know, where we were located. Maria, the thing that's interesting here is that the problems of the past often lead to pain today. So could you maybe talk to us a little bit about the struggles that we've actually had in getting people to open up and to share their experiences? Because it wasn't exactly easy. No. So when uh, I was initially contacted by the Herald, I have other colleagues and acquaintances and friends here in New Zealand who are from that region, and I reached out to them. And they absolutely cannot talk. They are so completely traumatized that they cannot talk. One in particular said, you know, I'll never be able to go back and go to our graveyards or, you know. So it's, it's, um, it's partly losing those indigenous lands and those memories and, and those old ancient cultural heritage things that mean something to you that you know that your ancestors have been involved with. It's also the violence that's inflicted, as Anna was saying, about just because you were born Armenian. It's not like we did anything, you know, just because it's what in the U.S. courts say it's an accident of birth. And the amount of torture and the amount of violence that has been inflicted on people just because of that accident of birth is deeply unsettling 
even today here sitting in New Zealand, it never goes away. As Anna said, there's also a strength and a resilience, but there's also like a constant intergenerational trauma that is just there beneath the surface. For the latest news from around the globe, head to nzherald.co.nz slash world. And be sure to follow the front page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. There's also a power in telling the stories and keeping those stories alive. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about the history of Nagorno-Karabakh and how it all came to this point? Armenians have been attacked for thousands of years Their indigenous lands have been largely taken from them. They've been subject to genocide after ethnic cleansing, after massacre, after pogroms. And they have lost so much of their people, their community. We are sort of scattered and battered all over the world. We're here in New Zealand partly because of that, because we don't have our historic homelands and we've sort of been wandering the earth, trying to find a home, trying to find a safe place. You know, Armenians are one of the oldest people in the history of the world with this very ancient culture. And you could go back and say, oh, wow, you know, the first people to make wine or the first people to make a shoe or, you know what I mean? So it's a really ancient, ancient culture and people. So that's kind of the, I think, the starting place, the springboard of it all. But obviously that region where Armenians are indigenous has really been subject to a lot of conquests over a long history. But the most significant one is the one that started with the Seljuk invasion, which is when the Ottomans came in as imperialists, essentially took control of the region and started massacring and killing people who wouldn't be subjected to them. Obviously, it culminated into the Armenian genocide in 1915, in which roughly 1.5 million Armenians were killed. My family was part of that, and we lost everything, our communities, our land, our Everything. So there's this region that was not part of the Ottoman Empire, historically known to Armenians as Artsakh, thought of as sort of the bastion of Armenian culture. I mean, there is Armenia proper as well, but Artsakh was, even when it was conquested and conquested and part of, you know, a Persian Empire or an Arab Empire, it maintained, for the most part, autonomy. And the last version of that autonomy was uh, in the Soviet Union. But what Stalin did, and this is kind of what led to this last war, what Stalin did was he was very divide and conquer. He divide and conquered his you know, subjects quite a lot, is partly as a kind of give to Ataturk, who had just annihilated a whole bunch of additional Greeks and Armenians and Assyrians. In creating the modern Turkey, all of the indigenous Christians were just, you know, pushed out, Turkey for the Turks, essentially, or just killed. But partly as a give to Ataturk, Kemal, he took what was Armenian enclave for thousands of years, kept it autonomous, right? They called it an oblast. That's what they call the autonomous region. So it had sort of its own governance, but surrounded it by Azerbaijan. So he essentially separated it from Armenia, but still let it have some autonomy. That did not work very well for the Armenians. Even during the Soviet Union, Armenians did a lot of peaceful demonstrations. They were sort of the first people to do that within the Soviet Union to say, look, we're getting 
violated and were being treated like foreigners in our own land, and we would like to be reunited with Armenia back then. Anyway, if you fast forward to the more recent period of time, you get Gorbachev, and then you start seeing the USSR falling apart. And just about as this is happening, countries that were states within the SSR start to declare independence. Azerbaijan is one. Three days later, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is Artsakh, that's the name the Russians called it, means Black Garden. They declared independence three days later. And under all the international law, under Soviet law, this was all permissible. And it was rejected by Azerbaijan. They dissolved, essentially, the republic's government. And that's kind of what led to the first Nagorno-Karabakh war in which they were fighting for independence. It was a war for independence. conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh is one of the bitterest wars to come out of the end of the Soviet Union. It's a mountainous region that is internationally recognized as Azerbaijan, but for 30 years has been governed by local Armenians. They call it Artsakh. Last week, the Azerbaijani government launched what it called an anti-terrorist campaign and started shelling towns and villages in the region. The goal is clear, to end Artsakh and to reintegrate the territories into Azerbaijan. If I may, I would also like to add a few points. At this stage already, after Artsakh is given away or violently taken by Azerbaijan, now Azerbaijan is claiming, you know, the south of Armenia and parts of north Armenia as, you know, Azerbaijani land. And they are like threatening that they would attack Armenia. And they have even been warnings at official levels, for example, by the U.S. representative saying, you know, in the coming weeks, Azerbaijan will invade Armenia, and that's the south of Armenia to start with, and that includes my hometown or home village. So every time I come back to New Zealand, it has been a few years, I am thinking whether I will see my home again. How does Russia fit into all of this? I believe that the previous government in Armenia led quite balanced politics in terms of, you know, focusing on the interests of Armenia while maintaining good relations both with the West, with Russia and with Iran. Whereas in the past few years, the politics have gone, I would say, in the wrong direction and there have been constant triggering of the Russian officials, which combined with the geopolitical interests of Russia and the weakening of Russia in terms of, you know, the Russia and Ukraine war led to the situation we have now. So in the earlier days, Russia was acting a bit as a protector of Armenia, and that was helpful in staving off attacks from Turkey and Azerbaijan. But I think after the Velvet Revolution, which, you know, Armenia is the most democratic state in that region now as a result of the Velvet Revolution. And the guy who is president now is one of the leaders of that. But that doesn't sit well with the Russians (laughs) and his geopolitics have not fit in with their agenda. And so while they may have talked a good game in terms of trying to be a peace negotiator, it wouldn't have happened if Russia did not give Azerbaijan and Turkey, the green light. And I I add Turkey in there, too, because they armed Azerbaijan. They brought in mercenaries from Syria. They used munitions that are banned in international law. And then, of course, attacking civilians is also um, illegal. And so is torture. I mean, the bigger powers have their priorities and have their interests, right? And if they need to Mm -hmm. sacrifice this or that part, 
of their interests, they would do that, especially if you're not even trying to maintain good relations with them. So I believe that, you know, there needs to be some balance and knowledge and competency of knowing how you work with your partners. And just speaking to your friends and family in Armenia, do they have hope of a better future? Is there still some optimism there? Of course, hope and optimism and resilience are always there amongst Armenian people. It's just a matter of unity for like-minded people, those who are patriots and will struggle, will fight for the land, will fight to stay in their own lands. Because, look, this is a very important question. Just last year, in September 2022, War happened again in the south of Armenia. So there was an incursion of the south of Armenia, the town of Jermuk by Azerbaijan, and they killed over 200 soldiers and lots of soldiers also went missing. So there was lots of violence also towards uh, female soldiers, terrible crimes that were, you know, spread through social media. So whether you're abroad or your family's there, you know, you just feel that You need to fight it constantly. You need to be there and protect the land. Maria, given that we have had this blind eye turned to the struggle for such a long time, how can New Zealand and the international community help those affected by this ongoing crisis? I think there's so many ways that the international community can be useful. There needs to be international criminal court investigations, which, you know, we've already had one ICC prosecutor call it genocide, what just happened to the people of Artsakh. But a lot of the international community is so consumed with everything else that's going on. And look, it is really difficult because there's a struggle going on everywhere you turn. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we say we stand for indigenous people and then we let them all get killed. So one thing is a public statement, not buying Azerbaijani gas by other countries. So those are just some of the things international community can do. We should take some refugees here. I know that family members of New Zealanders are stuck in nowhere land right now. And if we could bring some of them here, that would be extremely useful, at least for those families. Now, New Zealand touts itself as a human rights country and a leader in human rights. And yet every Anzac Day, every Anzac Day, it sits there with Turkey and declares its ongoing friendship with an imperialistic country that annihilated its indigenous populations and refuses to even let Armenians near when Anzac Day in the Armenian genocide occurred at the same time, and they are linked. If they want to be friends with Turkey, great. But friends tell friends when there's dirt on their face. Friends don't let friends do awful, nasty, human rights-abusing things. So New Zealand can take a stand there, and it can use its voice in the United Nations, and it can use its voice, especially if it wants to continue calling itself a leader in human rights in these ways. Thanks for joining us, Maria and Anna. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson and Paddy Fox with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in on Monday for another look behind the headlines.